0: About five and a half years ago, Amy and I, after we had brought home our little boy Colton from Ethiopia, we uh, applied again to Ethiopia to bring home another child. And so we sent all of our documentation over there, which takes hours upon hours to complete. But we did it again, and that was five and a half years ago, not knowing exactly what would come of that because we weren't sure the status of Ethiopia's adoption situation uh, at the time or how it would turn out. But nevertheless, we desired to have another, uh, child from Ethiopia, and so we went ahead. Fast forward several years, uh, to last year, we finally received a referral. And what was remarkable about this, re- remarkable about this referral was that it was for a baby girl. And we did not expect to receive that referral. We have two boys, we expected we have, we'd get another boy, and that would be wonderful, because boys are wonderful, though very rambunctious. Um, we expected that we'd have another boy, and that would be fine, and we'd praise the Lord for that. But we both desired to have a girl. I grew up with uh, three older sisters, and my wife has uh, had as a sister, and we just wanted to have a girl in our family. And, and the phone call came, and we were blown away by God's grace because this referral was for a baby girl. And um, so we were... Uh, they, but they said, you need to update all of your information, so we worked very quickly to update all of our information. Shortly after we received the referral... Actually, this referral was last year. Several months later, just a few months ago, we learned that Ethiopia had suspended adoptions. And so that it looked very grim for us even bringing home this baby girl. And that was about two months ago. And then about six weeks after that, we learned that the Ethiopia had lifted the suspension and that they were again allowing adoptions to occur. So then we received a phone call that said that we had uh, received a... Letter, a recommendation letter, which you need in order to go to Ethiopia, in order to go to court, in order to then pass court and have that child become your own. It's a long process, but nevertheless, you need that letter. And so we got a phone call about three weeks ago that that letter had come in. So the suspension had lifted, the letter had come in, and so we're we're excited. And this means things are moving along. A day later, they said not only has the letter come in, but now you have a court date. Be in Ethiopia in four days. Okay, we'll do what we can. And so that was a Thursday. And so we'd spent the weekend preparing to leave. And we uh, eventually left that Sunday to leave, uh, to go to Ethiopia. And we flew over there expecting to be there for a few days. We packed for a few days because in this process, there's only, there's two trips. You go once, spend a week, meet the child, go to court, come back home, leave the child there. Six to eight weeks later, you come back and pick up your child, go to embassy, come home with the child. So that's what we expected. However, once we got over there, it it, it seemed that there is such a situation that you would be, actually be able to do all of that six- to eight-week process in between the two trips at once. And prior to us leaving, our adoption agency said, don't even try it. It's impossible. It can't happen in one trip. I wouldn't recommend even trying. We get there on the ground, and it appears that that is the case, that we're able to do that. So within one week... We had to complete a series of uh, document acquisitions, and this is what it was. First, we had to pass court, which we did on Thursday, and we decided to stay in country. Remember, we were supposed to leave that Thursday. We decided to stay in country. I bumped the tickets out to the following Friday so we could stay in country. We needed to get the court decree that said we passed court. We needed her birth certificate. We needed something called a vital letter. We needed to apply for her visa. We needed her passport. We needed a medical Uh, full medical. Then we needed to uh, make a visa appointment, pick up the visa, and then come home. A large, long process that's supposed to take several weeks, we are able to complete in a matter of days. And then we got to the last day, we just needed her visa from the embassy, and they said, sorry, the system is down. So come Thursday, we're supposed to have the visa. It hasn't come. Come Friday, it hasn't come. Now we're panicked because Saturday and Sunday, embassy doesn't work, and Tuesday's going to be July 4th. So we finally received the visa on Monday and we fly home. And what was glorious about this whole situation is what I want to encourage you with and just give God praise for is that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And What I mean by that is that the suspension happened and we were devastated thinking we'll never bring baby girl home. And actually what that enabled to what actually that enabled a situation where once we came into country, once the suspension was lifted, both the embassy and the Ethiopian government were working in such a way that they were trying to make up for all the the uh, lost time. So we arrived at the exact right moment so that everything could happen so that we could bring her home in one trip. Totally out of the blue. No one expected that to happen. And then when we had the visa delay, it turns out in the sweet turn of providence that when we came home, see, she has an IR3 visa. And what that means is the moment she steps foot past uh, customs into uh, American soil, she becomes an American citizen by fiat, just like that. She's now an American, ci- American citizen. That happened because of the visa delay in Washington, D.C. on July 4th. It's just cool, Right. That's just cool. It's just a just a, a neat turn of providence on God's part. So behind a, a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face, and He was kind and gracious to us. And we are so thankful for those of you who prayed for us, prayed us home, and we know that you were diligent to do so. We could feel those prayers, and we are grateful to you. The Lord made us taste of our helplessness while we were there, but He also provided for us abundantly. So thank you very much for praying for us. We're here. She's she's doing great. The boys. Are loving on her and we're just having a fun time our house has exploded we don't know what's going on or what we're doing or where we're going but i'm here to preach so that's we've got at least got that lined up so um, thank you for praying for us and uh, we're happy to be back home so let's turn to titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 this is going to be a two-part series pastor cliff Give me the opportunity to preach two Sundays. And so I want to preach on a, a passage that I just love. I really enjoy this passage. It is a, it is a pleasant passage to me. It is a sweet passage. It is a challenging passage. It describes in very short order the Christian life in wholesale. What it looks like to walk by grace. And if I were to ask you, what is grace? How would you answer? And if I were to ask you, how does grace operate in the life of the Christian? How would you answer? Paul's going to answer that question here. And in some ways, I think in remarkable ways, he's going to answer that question in ways that will challenge, I believe, every single one of us, regardless of where you come from or what your background is theologically or ecclesiologically. He is going to challenge us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to answer that question What is grace and how does it operate in the life of the Christian? Now, I've been thinking a lot about this issue because for whatever reason, I'm I'm concerned with and I desire to know more about how the Christian is to engage a fallen culture. I must tell you that over the years that I've thought about this question and researched this question and studied the Bible over this question, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the answer is not too complicated. We engage the culture by following Jesus in discipleship. It's that easy. And then Paul's going to explain to us how that plays out in our lives. Some Christians tend to think we engage a culture by becoming overly political or becoming unpolitical or not political at all by somehow enforcing legislation. By somehow gaining a political foothold, so to speak, and transforming culture into the romantic heydays of when we were a Christian nation. Well, we all know if we have any sense of history at all that that is not a reality that is going to happen anytime soon. In fact, we know that things seem to be getting progressively worse, and I've preached on these things before, when we went through Second Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, that we are faced with rampant unbelief in our broader culture, and we are faced with tremendous suffering in our broader lives. So the question is, is how do the Christian, how does the Christian engage the culture? And again, I'll just repeat, I believe it's simply by following Jesus in discipleship in our daily lives. That's what Paul's going to point out in this passage So I've given you three headings. It's really basic, really simple. What does a life of grace look like? When someone is walking in the power of grace, the power of the grace of God, what will that look like in their lives? Well, there are three headings. You can take your notes under those headings. We'll just briefly go over those right now. First, it looks like it's characterized by, a life of grace is characterized by courageous Submission to legitimate authorities. It's characterized consistent by consistent eagerness for good works and it's characterized by comprehensive kindness toward others. So today we're going to talk about the life, the kind of the nitty gritty practical aspect of a life of grace. And then next week we're going to give us the theological rooting The theological foundation to that life. Because unless we go all the way down to the foundations, into the deep soil of the gospel that Paul will lay out next week, all that we will talk about today will just float in the air. And it won't become real in our lives. It won't take root in our lives. So that's the plan. Today is verses 1 and 2. And then next week will be verses 3 through 7. That will give us the theological footing That we need, but Paul orders these things this way. Rightly, he doesn't always do this. In other texts of the Bible, in other books of the Bible, he'll begin with the theology and then he'll give us the practical, uh, um, the practical aspects of that, the practical implications of that. This time, he's going to give us the practical implications of that theology that he'll then address in verses four and following. So let's start with just looking at this first word. He says, he's speaking to uh, Titus. Paul is speaking to Titus, who was a pastor in Crete, that he had left there in order to set things right. One of the things that uh, Titus was supposed to do was to uh, set up elders and establish elders there who are qualified spiritual leaders to serve the church. And so Paul leaves Titus there to do that work, and that is what he's doing. So now he's writing him and giving him further instruction. And one of those uh, bits of instruction is how he is to instruct the people of Crete, the Christians at this local church. And so that's what verses 3, 1 through 7 will be. And I'm going to stop at verse 7 because I believe that he's he's instructing Titus here, but that he's also instructing Titus very specifically in verses 8 and following, although we can definitely draw um, good Conclusions from those texts for ourselves. Nevertheless, I believe verses 1 through 7 will apply directly to us. Uh, so that's how far we're going to go, verses 1 through 7. So Paul tells Titus, this is what you're supposed to do as a pastor with the Christians in Crete. You first are to remind them. And I want to stop there for a moment. Paul's telling Titus to remind them to do something. This is such an encouraging word for me because much of the pastoral ministry, much of your personal ministry will be simply reminding other Christians of things they've already been taught. Your work as a believer with other believers, my work as a pastor in large measure will simply be to unearth the truths that are lying dormant in your heart by way of reminder. There are things today that we'll talk about that you know that you've studied, that you've heard. And the role, my role as a pastor and as preacher is to simply remind you to walk in the things that you already know. Isn't that a comfort? Not, Don't have to come up with something spectacular. Just remind Christians of what they already know. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to do, and that is what he is instructing me to do, and in by implication, that's what he is instructing you, brothers and sisters, to do with other Christians. In large measure, your work as a Christian is to remind other believers of what they already know. So don't become discouraged when you're assigned a task to counsel or to teach, and you're like, well, they've heard this sort of thing before. Probably. And guess what? Your ministry of reminding is significant. It's powerful. It's needed. Peter, in Second Peter, used the word remind several times because he had written to that particular church to remind them of things that they already know. New in large major, that will be your ministry and mine as well. So Titus is telling Paul to remind them of something. What are they to be reminded of? And as we get down the text, you 're going to understand why they needed to be reminded of these things, because these things are hard. They're things that we don't naturally want to do. And we 'll see with the first one, how that is true. It says, "Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities." So a life of grace is characterized by courageous submission to legitimate authorities. Now, why did I say courageous and why did I say legitimate? Well, I say legitimate because there are such things as pretend authorities. Paul warns us against pretend spiritual authorities in the book of Galatians. Someone comes in teaching another gospel. You don't have to listen to them. They're no authority. Forget that guy. There are such things as people who pretend to be in authority that doesn't belong to them. For example, a crazy example probably hasn't happened to many of you, although it does happen. If a police officer who's not truly a police officer pulls you over and instructs you to hand over your uh, identification and give you the keys to your car and so on, you don't have to obey him because he's not a legitimate authority. So Paul's call here is to a courageous submission to legitimate authorities. Why courageous? Because in a world where the natural beat of our hearts is to rebel against legitimate authorities, it may cause you or may take a lot of courage in order for you to hold that line of submission to authority. You may find even professing Christians who think it is good and right to rebel against legitimate authorities so long as it serves their final spiritual ends. And we'll talk about that for uh, in a few moments, there are times when we must obey Christ rather than those who are in authority. But generally speaking, and this is not the only place we find this, we find it in Romans 13, we find it in first Peter two. the Christian who has been brought into submission to the living God, who is the supreme authority, will therefore yield himself and yield herself to other legitimate authorities. And that oftentimes will oftentimes will require courage. Let's go ahead and actually turn over to Romans chapter 13, where this is uh, detailed for us. Because we we tend if you're like me, we tend to think that this is kind of a take it or leave it aspect of the Christian life. We take it or we can take it or leave it obeying authorities, governing authorities. In our broader experience, it's not that big a deal. I mean, there's more important things in the Christian life than that, Derek. Surely there are more important things than that. Not really. And this is why. Let's look at the theology of this in Romans 13. Why is a life of grace characterized by submission to legitimate authorities? It's because it reveals your heart to the ultimate authority. Let me show you what I mean. Paul writes this in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For Because of this, you must also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all to what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Whether Whatever spe- uh, end of the spectrum you find yourself today, whatever end of the political spectrum you find yourself today, let it be known to you that the placement of Donald Trump as president of the United States was done by none other than God himself. Same with Barack Obama a few years ago. God does that. God is the one who places men into the places of authority for his good and wise purposes. Purposes that oftentimes we can't discern when we see the people and consider the people that he allows or places into authority. The point is, and the point, one of the points that Paul is making, is that the reason why you subject yourself and you submit yourself to those authorities is for the sake of your own conscience. What does he mean? Because... If you are in constant friction in rebellion against governing authorities, what that reveals is that your heart is probably not right. Yea, it is not right with the ultimate authority, namely God himself. This is an important issue for Christian assurance. You can come to church, you can praise God all day long, you can read your Bible, you can pray, and if you are constantly in friction against the governing authorities in your life, it reveals that you have yet to yield to God's ultimate authority. You cannot argue with Paul in this text, you cannot argue with Paul in Titus 3. And why is that so so important? Because we tend to think that this is something that we can take or leave. There are more important things to the Christian life. Paul would say there, there are not more important things in the Christian life. This is something that reveals your heart. So it's vital. A life of grace is characterized by this submission to rulers and authorities. Now, I think he, what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's saying we must be submissive, or in your text might say subject. I think he's talking about the attitude there, and then he's going to follow it up. The next sentence he's going to say, remind them to... Be obedient. So on the one hand, he's talking about the attitude. And then on this next word, the, uh, the word obedient, he's talking about the action. Not merely are we to have an attitude of submission, we are to act on it. You are to pay your taxes and to not cheat on your taxes in order to set aside money in order to do more missions or whatever it might be, right? You could see that kind of justification. Well, if I kind of skimp on my taxes, then I could have more money to give to the church, Paul would say, no, you, you pay taxes to whom taxes are due, to be obedient. You, we, we obey the speed limits and so on. When we are confronted with a situation where we need to yield to the, the governing authorities, we do it. We are obedient. A life of grace and the Christian life is characterized by this obedience to the governing authorities. Is there a time to disobey? Yes. Acts 529, when the governing authorities tell you to do something that is against God's word, you have all the freedom and the right to disobey that word. As the apostles did in Acts, when they are said, you can't speak no longer, you cannot no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And they said, sorry, we're going to do it. We obey God rather than men. Nevertheless, The character, the heartbeat of the Christian is to yield to the legitimate authorities that God has put in your place, whether that's government, students, whether that is parents, because that reveals your heart towards the ultimate authority. So be subject to the authorities, be obedient to them, Interestingly, in in Romans, when Paul was writing that um, text, he was writing in the context of a government that was rampant in idolatry, ritual prostitution, slavery, extortion, and crazy amounts of taxation. Nevertheless, what does he tell the Christians to do? Yield. Yield. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't take legitimate um, avenues of trying to find ways to, for example, decrease our taxation and so on. We live in a democratic society and we have been given the freedom to do that. Nevertheless, by and large, our life is to be characterized by a submission to the governing authorities. Why? Because God has put them in place. That's challenging, isn't it? Is that challenging to you? I mean, that's challenging to me. I put my car on cruise control on the way up here so I'd stay 65 on the drive up here as i was thinking about this text <laughs> cuz really easy to go too fast but so a courageous submission to legitimate authorities next again another challenging word i want to camp out on this one a consistent eagerness for good works a consistent eagerness for good works a life of grace is characterized by consistent eagerness for good works when you are saved apart from your works the scripture would tell us you're now empowered to be rich in good works when you are saved apart from your works you're now empowered to be rich in good works let's look at the text that sam uh read a little earlier in the passage starting in verse 11 it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So grace is not passive, it's active. It is teaching us, it's instructing us, it's changing us. We tend to think of grace as kind of leniency. God doesn't get mad when we screw up. Grace is active. Grace is forgiving, absolutely, but grace is also active. It's training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What are we doing? We're waiting for the blessed of, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're longing for that. We can't wait for that. Who is this Christ? And what has He done and why did He come and do what He did? Jesus' mission statement here, verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Got it. Continue. Who are zealous for good works. Jesus came and died, among other things, to create for himself a people who had a passion to do good, a passion for good works. Now, as an amateur sociologist that I am, as I kind of watch the trends in evangelicalism and church history and kind of put my finger on, try to put my finger on things, I've noticed that there is just massive confusion on this issue of good works within the church and the larger evangelical church church presently right now. Just massive confusion. There's a sense in which we believe that good works can only occur within a church context. There is the sense in which some of us have come to believe that good works aren't really a priority for the Christian life, and the reason for that is because we're, we fear that if we that if we give the Scripture its full voice on this issue, we will begin to embrace what a social gospel, and will become do-gooders who only do good and never preach the gospel, and who lose the gospel. And then there are some who believe that good works are the supreme priority of the church, and they do begin to embrace a social gospel, and they do eventually lose the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. You see it in churches who are embracing a widespread... Global concern about doing good in the world, yet have completely lost the nuances of the gospel. And then you see it in other churches who have strong biblical theological teaching, who think that good works are simply um, something that you can tack onto the Christian life if you want to. It's not a big deal, but we should try to. Uh, we should be be careful to avoid any possible encroachment of good works on the gospel because we don't want to embrace a social gospel. There's just massive confusion, and it's been this way, it seems, for several decades. The scripture, however, draws a uh, a seamless connection between the gospel and Good works. And so what I want to do is over the past few weeks, as I've tried to dig into this issue, is I want to help us define what good works are. And I want to see their place in the Christian life. A person who is renewed and reborn by the spirit and saved, not on the basis of their works, will be free to be rich in good works. Here's what's interesting. Paul's especially concerned about good works in the letter to Titus. He's particularly concerned. Watch this. Titus one sixteen, he says this. He says, he's talking about unbelievers. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay? Good works are in his mind. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. Show yourself, speaking to Titus now. We're going to go back to this verse because it's very challenging for me and should be for all of us, but nevertheless, he says in verse 7 of chapter 2, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. So the pastor is to not only be excellent in his teaching, he's to be a model of good works. Verse 14, we, we just read this. Jesus gave himself for us to create a people who are zealous, not merely who do, but who are passionate, zealous for good works. He says it in verse 2. How does he say it? There are people, Christians are people who are ready for every good work. You're prepared, you're ready, you're eagerly looking for it. Chapter 3 verse 8. The saying is trustworthy and I want to insist on you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Chapter 3 verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. The implication is, no good works, you're unfruitful. Paul is consumed here with the issue of good works in this letter to Titus. In this short, tiny, three-chapter letter that you can read in two minutes almost, Paul has mentioned good works a total of one, two, three, four, five times. And he's and he's he's put good works at the center of Jesus's ministry to come and save a people. So it's important, right? It's important. But what are these good works? See, we don't want to be become we don't want to become presumptuous helpers. We want to be obedient servants. And what do I mean by that? Now I love my boys with all my heart. I miss them for those two weeks. And I couldn't wait to get back home. But it's funny sometimes to see they desperately want to help around the house. They want to help me. They want to help their mommy. They want to help. And what that leads to oftentimes is them doing things that are not particularly helpful. Here, daddy, I got this for you. Oh, boy, I didn't need that. And not only that, but you took it off the shelf and now you spilled everything. Everybody. Oh, this is not not helpful. Now, they're sweet, and I don't fault them for that, but there's a kind of presumption there, right? I know what you need, Daddy. You didn't instruct me, but I know. So they've become presumptuous helpers rather than an obedient servant who goes and does exactly what the Master told them to do. And if we're not careful with this issue of good works, we will become presumptuous helpers instead of obedient servants. And I'm afraid there there are churches the world over cranking out presumptuous helpers who do not understand what it means to be rich in good works. So that's what I want to do for us right now. So let's just look at a few texts just briefly. What are good works? How do we define them? How do we to understand them? In the Gospels... We see that Jesus' healing and feeding ministry was a ministry of good works. John 10:32. He asked the Pharisees who wanted to stone him for many good works. Many good works I've done. I've done. Which ones do you stone me for? Referring specifically to his healing and feeding ministry, right? Good works. In, in uh, Acts 9:36, we learn that Dorcas. What was it? What was her other name? Tabitha. Is it? Is that right? Tabitha, Dorcas. Um, acts nine thirty six. She was rich in good works and acts of charity. First Timothy six eighteen. The rich are instructed to be th- those who are wealthy are to not be conceited, but to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. First Timothy five ten. We're going to come back to this text, an important text for you, mommies out there. It says, referring to those who uh, the church should care for, if uh, if they're a widow, this is we, you need to determine who's a true widow, and Paul's going to describe a true widow. And so in 1 Timothy 5.10, he says, if they've had a reputation for good works, and then he's going to explain what those good works are. They've had a reputation for good works if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. So what Paul does there in that short little section that we'll go back to is that he is defining good works for the woman of God. What do they look like? Brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, and so on. We'll go back to that text. We are told in Ephesians 2.10 that God has saved us. We are his workmanship so that we would be rich in good works. Matthew 5.14 says, Let your good works shine before men, so that they may see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As I've kind of quarried the New Testament, this is what I've come, come up with in terms of what Paul's referring to, what the New Testament is referring to when it's speaking of good works. Good works consist of providing for the physical welfare of another person, namely food, medical care, monetary care, clothing, housing, etc., Good works consist of caring for children, and showing hospitality, caring for the physical needs of the saints and those who are afflicted. So though there is an emphasis or an accent on the physical care of people when it refers to good works, you can't totally separate that from the mental and the spiritual care that you would give someone because we can often give spiritual comfort to others as we are caring for the afflicted. We're not only afflicted physically we're also afflicted emotionally and spiritually but there is an accent on the physical care of people when referring to good works in the new testament doesn't have to be strictly physical but there's an accent there good works are expressed in acts of financial generosity and to those who are in need here's what's vital here's what's vital good works are designed to accompany the gospel not to replace it. They are given, they are to be, we are to be fruitful in good works so that that those good works are to adorn and accompany the gospel, not to replace it. To those churches that are drifting in a direction where everything now is about doing good works, I would say, do not lose the only ministry that the that the church can truly do. Namely, teach and preach the gospel. Only the church is able to do that. No other institution in the world is able to teach and preach the gospel. There are foundations the world over, institutions the world over, that are able to provide for the poor, to provide clean water, to provide clothing and housing, All good things, many of many of which you are already involved in at an individual level, and I and I commend you for that as you carry out your discipleship with Christ in these various areas. But only the church can teach and preach the gospel. We can never lose that. So these good works that we're to be rich in and to not neglect are to accompany and adorn the gospel, never to replace it. But I'd also say, and this is important too, you do not need to do a good work in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. This is also, I've seen, a mistake that's made by by some, where you think you need to gain some sort of hearing by doing good works in a, a certain area of town or the, the world. It's not true. Nowhere in the scripture are we led to believe that you must do good works in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation and you can preach it at any moment, anywhere, at any time. But that still leaves us with a text like this that says that Christians are to be eager and ready for every good work now here's where it comes really challenging for me and maybe become challenging for you the question is is teaching and preaching a good work well let's look back over to uh, Titus chapter 2 Titus chapter 2 verse 7 very challenging text speaking to Titus here who is a pastor who's to be an example to the flock. And when the, the pastor is called to be an example to the flock, that doesn't allow the flock to no longer pursue these things. They're to pursue them by implication. But nevertheless, the pastor is to be an example. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And I might say, well, great, I'm seeking to do that through my teaching ministry and my counseling ministry and... and um, Paul would say, and in your teaching, show integrity. What does he do there? In that teaching ministry, you're to practice integrity, to teach accurately, to teach carefully, to not teach for sordid gain, to do it with good motives, right motives. But what does he do? He makes a distinction, not a separation, but a distinction between being a model in good works and in his teaching teaching show integrity. So I would never say that teaching is not a good work, but the good works that Paul has in mind are not only teaching. He has something else in mind, and he gives us an example over here in verse 14 of chapter 3. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need. So there are cases of urgent need, whether they're financial, whether they're clothing, whatever they might be, that need to be met by Christians who are eager to be uh, rich in good works, who are ready for every good work. The pastor is to be an example of those kinds of good works, no matter how strong or powerful his teaching ministry is. And I find it ironic that in some of the comment, commentators I read, this passage, this phrase here, this line, this 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 verse is completely skipped over. No comment on it whatsoever. I read one that said, the pastor is to show himself to be a model of good works, to do righteous deeds, and to uh, show integrity in his teaching. And I read that going, that's not commentary. You're just repeating what the Bible said. I want you to explain what this means. Why? Well, because I'm afraid... That we're, we're 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 a little scared to embrace what that means. Fortunately, here at this church, I would I would argue that we have someone, we have people on staff who are seeking to carry this out. And you know, you probably don't. A lot of you may not know this, but um, Pastor Cliff, I would say, is a model of good works. You, you you may not know it because he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. But he is often providing uh, for people generously, giving them places to stay in his home. He's a model of he and Debbie are models of hospitality. They care for the afflicted. They have a reputation for providing for others out of their uh, means and so on. Bob Douglas is raising up a team to go down to Hope House to not only carry the gospel, but to also to just minister to the bodies and souls of these Little boys. To just love them. Just, just pick them up. Care for them. Give them a hug. Bob labors diligently to help this ministry in India that we're part of, providing for orphans and widows. I know of an elder on our elder team, I won't mention who, who is providing significant, uh, financial backing for their uh, one of their relatives so that they might go to school. So we have a team of pastors and elders who are doing this. Who are not satisfied to merely say, well, I teach and that's 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 good enough. Those are enough good works for me. No, they are models in good works. Similarly. We need to see that Paul is making a distinction between a teaching ministry and being eager and ready for good works. Jesus sent his disciples out to preach and to heal. However, this is where we need to gain some more footing and help and hopefully define these things a little more clearly. Where does, where do good works start? Because the moment I start talking about this, you might be thinking, boy, I need to get on an airplane and fly over to, um, uh, another country so I can be rich in good works. I don't think so. I don't think that's where the New Testament would have us go. In the New Testament, good works begin among believers. I believe I have textual basis for that statement. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. Good works start here, among us. Serving your brothers and sisters who are in need. Did you know there are people in this church who have needed places to live, who have been in financial trouble, who don't know where they're going to say stay tomorrow. It starts here. It starts among us. It's not meant to be a strict rule, but rather a principle of priority. Global, global poverty should be on the Christian's radar, just out of sheer compassion, but not nearly as much as local poverty and not nearly as much as poverty within the church and not nearly as much as poverty within your own home. Where do good works start? They start in your home. They branch out into the local church. And then they go broader than that. There is a priority of proximity. You may have heard that before. There's a priority of proximity. Those to whom you are closest, those are the ones to whom you will perform the most good works. And let's go back to 1 Timothy 5.10 and encourage you moms right now. You might be thinking rich in good works, I get three hours of sleep a night. All, all I mostly do is feed and bathe and change the diapers of my children. I, I teach them the Bible. I try to teach them how to walk in faithfulness. But rich and good words, works, Derek, work, Derek, come on. This is a burden I cannot bear. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 5. What does Paul say? Speaking of that woman who is qualified to be on the, the role to, have, to be cared for as a widow. It says, verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years old of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Guess what? The beauty of the gospel... Of justification by faith alone is that you don't need to go anywhere to do good works, moms. Raising your children is your opportunity to be rich in good works. That's what Paul says. Your raising of your children, you're wiping their noses and wiping their bottoms, serving them, providing for them are all cases of what? Urgent need. Am I right? Your baby needs a diaper change. That's urgent need. That's about as urgent as it gets. What Martin Luther captured in the Reformation, recaptured, I should say, in the Reformation, is that because we are saved by faith alone, because we are justified by faith alone, you don't need to go to the church to do good works. See, the medieval church was wrapped up in that sort of approach to good works, so that you went and did the sacraments at church, and those are the good works that got you into heaven. Martin Luther comes along, drops the justification by faith bomb, explodes that kind of thinking, and says, no, good works are done to the people, to the neighbor that is closest to you. No longer do you have to do these sacramental good works in order to earn your way to heaven. You have Christ already. Now go serve your neighbor. mommies." Go serve your children and be rich in good works at home. What an encouragement that is. What a freedom that is. So there's the priority of proximity. Home, then church, then community, then city, then state, then nation, then world. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are in the household of of faith. One of the biggest struggles I think that Christians should have is that we simply don't have enough time in the day to do all the good we want to do for Christ's sake. There's not enough time in the day to preach the gospel to all the people we want to preach it to. There's not enough time in the day to provide for all the needs we want to provide for. That's a good problem to have. That's a good burden to have. See, Paul doesn't allow us... To take one or the other, gospel or good works. He puts it together. He says, if you are justified by grace, if the Spirit's been poured out richly upon you, if you're an heir of the hope of eternal life, then verse two, or verse one rather, be ready for every good work. Let's have the courage to have those who are more theologically minded to criticize us for being rich in good works and those who are more socially minded to criticize us because we will not lose the gospel. Let's have enough courage to be criticized on both sides to do what the scripture tells us to do. That's a life of grace characterized by courageous submission to authorities characterized by consistent eagerness for good works. Finally, It's characterized by comprehensive kindness towards others. And we need to end here. And the beauty of a two-week series is I can come back to this next week. But what we want to say is a life of grace is characterized by comprehensive kindness toward others. Again, another challenging passage, especially when we are placed in a situation, in a culture, in a society where it seems like everything, morally speaking, is crashing down upon us. The moral structures of our society are quickly disintegrating. They're not crumbling. They're disintegrating into thin air. And the temptation is to speak of cultural pundits, the folks on CNN, leaders, senators, particularly senators in California, with disdain, with bitterness, and to start seeing them as the enemy of the american dream rather than souls that need the grace of jesus christ and if you've tasted that grace then you will like paul be someone who is characterized by a comprehensive kindness towards others that's why he would say revile no one remind them titus or uh, titus remind your people to revile no one to slander no one to not be contentious to not be a fighter a pugilist who tries to stir up controversy. Richard Cecil says, it's a foolish project to avoid giving any offense, but it is our duty to avoid giving unnecessary offense. If you're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. We will be persecuted, but we should not be going out of our way to stir up controversy. Paul says, do not be contentious, rather be gentle. And that can be summed up in what? Showing perfect courtesy to all people we're not bombastic we're not overbearing and we certainly don't see people as the enemy we all have one enemy we all have one enemy and it's not the local senator it's not the lgbt community it's that serpent of old the deceiver of all mankind that's our enemy And so when we grasp a hold of that, we are gracious, we are gentle, we show perfect courtesy to all people. In all matters that are not of biblical import, we should be willing to yield to the preferences of others and show culturally appropriate ways of deference towards others. Are we convictional? Absolutely. Will we stand and ready to die on hills, theological hills? Yes. But when it comes to non-biblical issues, let's just be willing to yield, to show perfect courtesy to all people, to show others that this place is not our home. We have a citizenship in heaven. We don't need to defend the American dream. We don't need to fight for the American dream. we got a dream that's a whole lot better. So let's be kind. Convictional Kindness. Well, next week we're going to look at how it's possible to live this kind of life because if you're like me, this is an exceedingly challenging set of principles and Paul's going to root it in, guess what, the gospel. And not just the gospel as kind of a broad framework, but in a very specific word about the gospel. We're justified by grace. So we'll look at that next week. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful to you for this powerful, intimidating, challenging, yet pleasant and delightful word. When we walk by grace, when we open our ears to hear your word, Lord, your word is pleasant. It instructs us in a life that is fruitful in good works, that yields in good conscience to authority, that's not pugnacious, that's not quarrelsome, but gentle, patient, kind, willing to suffer wrong. Lord, would you do that work in us and in this church and in me? Thank you for the pastors we have on staff who are models of good works and yet also show integrity in their teaching. Would you do a mighty work in the churches of this city who are drifting in one of two wrong directions and bring them back to a biblical center For your glory, for the glory of Christ, for the glory of the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen.